Come here, doggies. It's okay. Hi, doggies. Hi, my name's Doug. Doug? Yeah. Hi, Doug. Glad to meet you. Nice to meet you. My buddy, Andy. We're, hey, Andy. We're from Portland. We do a radio show up there, and we decided to drive down to McDermott. Yeah. Just see what's going on along the way. On so, the edge, man. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. We're in Oregon now. My front of the house is in Nevada. My shop and everything is in the in the backyard, so I call it living on the edge. So when we went up to the front then, we were in Nevada. Well, my car's yeah. parked in Nevada, but right now you and I are talking in Oregon. Yeah, That's awesome. exactly. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll show you something. Yeah. Like, like, like. It is August 2014, and the Kick-Ass Oregon History Road Trip 2014 crew is leaving Oregon by walking across the room. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction basically the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. The purity of the road. The white line in the middle of the highway unrolled and hugged our left front tire as if glued to our groove. The least known part of Oregon is its southeastern corner. In these many thousands of square miles, the largest community has less than 200 population and no other settlement can count 50 persons within its boundaries. This area is so remote that in the 101 miles between Jordan Valley and McDermott, there are only two motels, and in the 147 miles between Burns and McDermott, only one motel is available. Ralph Friedman, Oregon for the Curious. Oregon Geographic Names notes that Jordan Valley is on Jordan Creek, named for one Michael Jordan. Long range, Jordan hits it, 56 for Jordan. Jordan, 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 big basket for the Chicago Bulls. But not that Michael Jordan. 
This Michael Jordan led a clutch of fellows that found gold on the creek banks in 1863. The creek name is a memorial, it would seem, and this Michael Jordan was killed in a fight with Native Americans. One important point here, ass kickers, Jordan Valley is a large geographic and geological location, but within that valley, there is a little town called Jordan Valley. For the past 100, 120 years or so, the region has the renown of being a location of Basques and pregnant with Basque heritage. A people with a minimum of 5,000 years of history, the Basques lived in a region that straddles today's national borders of France and Spain in the Pyrenees to the Bay of Biscay. With a unique language and allowed to thrive for centuries unaffected by some of the horrific European wars, the Basques preserved their culture for generations in relative independence. But the Basques were not isolated. Basque mariners were quite active in the 15th century. They fished for cod and whales across the Atlantic into Arctic regions and even Newfoundland. Many Basques were reported to have crewed Columbus's ships, and hundreds of years later, many Basques found themselves in communities of the western United States, in Winnemucca, Nevada, in Boise, Idaho, and even in Jordan Valley, right here in Oregon. The Basques in Jordan Valley came to herd sheep in the desert. It is an incorrect stereotype to imply that all Basques are sheep herders, but that was the primary occupation for many in the area. As you might have guessed, the Basques faced racism in the West, and media portrayals were obscene. As historian Richard Etterlin has documented, the 1909 Caldwell, Idaho Tribune stated that the sheepmen of Owyhee County are solely beset by Biscaynes, or Bascos, as they are commonly called. Their scale of living and methods of doing business are on par with those of the Chinamen. Copper-colored bullfighters has been another insult thrown at the Basques, and racism and prejudice surely accompanied these slurs. But in Jordan Valley, the Basques were able to scratch out a decent living in the middle of the fucking desert. Today, there really isn't much to see there in the town of Jordan Valley, save for the Pelota Fronton, a walled field to play the Basque sport likened to handball. It is stone and huge and pretty impressive, but there isn't much else to bring a visitor to Jordan Valley, and that is a tradition that has been established for decades. All right, so it's 19 even. Okay. Now what? Just here, save keep me. the buck. Are you sure? Yeah. So, oh. what's the story with all the Basque stuff here? What do you mean? Is everybody here Basque? Are you Basque? Not everyone. Not everyone. everyone. Everyone, when they first came over here, it's called Spanish Basque, and uh, they used to sheep herders. They came through, and then after a few years, they just kept coming in with cattle. And there's only a few more ranches that do have sheep. Other than that, everyone is mainly cattle around here, cattle lifestyle. So you don't have any Basque heritage yourself? No, no but like Elordize and the owner of the shell, he's Basque. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they still talk Basque with each other and that kind of thing? Yeah. 
little it, bit. Yeah, it's a little hard. A little difficult yeah. language. Yeah. But yeah, there's a few that do. Um, Boise, they do a Basque festival, which is pretty cool. I know most of the people do speak Basque. And then, yeah, that's about it. Um, if you really want to know about it, there's a museum up there right by that political court wall where the Basque used to play. We uh, we went in there. It was closed. The, the open signs are up, and she went off to get lunch or something. So, really? Yeah. We'll, we'll swing by there. Yeah. yeah. Nice to right meet on. you. Nice to meet name? you. Thanks, Doug. Eli. Eli. Thanks, Eli. I come from just the other side of nowhere to this big-time lonesome town. They got a lot of ice and snow here Ain't half as cold as all the people I found Between Jordan Valley and McDermott is, well, just about nothing. There are few natural features to check out, but as far as settlements go, save a cafe and gas station at Rome near Rome Crossing, that's about all you have. That and a whole shit ton of jackrabbits. Basque Station, a state highway maintenance community. The only sign of life on this windswept plateau for many miles. There is Basque Station, location of an Oregon Department of Transportation maintenance station. The little group of buildings on the side of the road plays well with this isolation theme. A sign states that their elevation is 4,650 feet and the population is 10. A stockade is attached with a label that says City Jail, and there's another placard with Fire Station, but the shelf underneath it containing the firefighting equipment was empty upon our inspection. News stories about the Jordan Valley-McDermott area from the early 20th century demonstrate this extreme isolation. They say a man from Portland hired out to work at Rome. He stood it two weeks without seeing a railroad train. E.A. Stauffer was in the city Thursday for his mail. Mr. Stauffer's ranch is 50 miles from town. Quite a distance to go for mail. Another period visitor observed... We had pictured this country as a barren region with but one road, but we found it was an empire of sagebrush and hills crossed by a veritable spider web of automobile trails. Ranchers had cut roads through the sage from every important point to every other important point, not respecting section lines or private lands. But being so close to the outskirts of the Mecca of Vice, Nevada, the area was seemingly a hotbed for bootlegging activity during Prohibition. A 1918 incident illustrates this proclivity. Santiago Guacaquea and John Ituriaga were driving through this lonely desert when military policemen crossed their path. Nearly 26 cases of illegal alcohol burdened the two men's automobile. Given the order to stop, the two brigands chose to haul ass across the sagebrush instead, full speed ahead. The feds followed and peeled off pistol potshots at the fleeing felons. 
All suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. One random shot managed to puncture the bootlegger's tire, but they drove on. The rim eventually gave way and the car stopped. Guacakea and Itiriaga surrendered and were fined $400. The liquor was confiscated. This was hardly an isolated prohibition incident. Considering the tiny population in this vast valley, it seemed like everyone must have been in on it, or certainly in the know. After a 1917 visit from a United States Marshal caused a few Basque fellows to spill the beans on some bootlegging operations, the telephone wires were alight with warnings from Jordan Valley all the way to McDermott. originally named Sandwich Island River, so-called, explained Peter Skeen Ogden, owing to two of them murdered by Snake Indians in 1819, the two men employees of Hudson's Bay Company came from the Hawaiian or Owyhee Islands, which our early Englishman friend Captain Cook had discovered, or honored with the name of the first lord of the admiralty, the Earl of Sandwich. The name of the river was later changed from Sandwich Island to Owyhee. Ralph Friedman, Oregon for the Curious. Yeah, I have to say I was hoping the Owyhee would be less of a ditch. Yeah, it's kind of like an and irrigation it, ditch. And it could be just where we are because we, you know, we were going to go you know, had we followed that one long gravel road, we were gonna, we would have gone through the state park along the Owyhee, the, this wild and scenic section. The Owyhee Gorge is nearby, and that's supposed to be rather beautiful. Um, but we are skipping both of those to be here on the Owyhee Rome Landing, Rome Landing uh, Memorial Sewer. <laughs> on our summer 2014 road trip, we camped along the Owyhee River at the BLM's Rome Landing Campground. The campsite is composed of about five unimproved sites and three sad, spindly cottonwood trees. But there was a sit-down shitter, and this may have been the exact location that Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau fell in the Owyhee River, caught pneumonia, and died. In addition to Pomp's legacy, the Owyhee is chock-full of history, having been inhabited for maybe about 8,000 years. In his tome of trapping, The Fur Hunters of the Far West, Alexander Ross gives us a little background on the Owyhee naming incident. The year was 1820, and Ross was employed by the Northwest Company just before it merged with the Hudson's Bay Company. Two great snake Indian chiefs were very anxious to know from Mackenzie whether any of his people had been killed by the Indians during the winter, and being answered in the negative, they appeared much pleased. 
They were, however, told that one had been lost, but was found. Little did our friends then think that what had really happened, or what had incited the Indians to be so inquisitive, it will be remembered that three of the Owyhees, as well as others, had been fitted out on a little river to hunt beaver, and our people had not heard any tidings of them. These three unfortunate men had all been murdered. This was what the chiefs had heard, and were so anxious about. And so, as soon as the chiefs went off, our people prepared to start, and in the meantime a party with an Indian guide was sent off to pick up and bring to camp the three Owyhees already mentioned. They found the place where they had been hunting and where they had been murdered. The skeleton of one of them was found, but nothing else. My name's Doug. Gary. Gary, I'm doing a, we're doing, a, we do a radio show in, Progr- in Portland, and we're kind of driving around down oh. here. You from the area? Yeah, I live in Jordan Valley. In Jordan Valley. So, you know, we were down there earlier. It was lovely. Really? It's, yeah, we looked at the, the handball court. And, are There's, you Basque? Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. It's, uh, your family's been there for a while then, huh? Yeah. Used to, grandparents came from Spain. <clears throat> Sheep. They had sheep, cows. Uh-huh. So do you speak Basque? No. No. But I heard that some of the folks there do. Yeah. Some of the well, my folks. mother. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too dumb to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Can hurt. you speak English? <laughs> what What do you think Jordan Valley's known for? Kind of. Well, it used to be a Basque place, but there's not very many Basques left. Mostly gringos. <laughs> did the, where did you think a lot of the bass from Jordan Valley went after they were done? Well, not all of them were in stock. Some had, they were uh, hotel keepers, storekeepers. And then they got old and they left. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful down here. This is a good little dip on a hot day, especially with the kids. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we didn't scare off your fish. Oh, I don't think you did. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Okay. Well, I think we're going to camp down here tonight, and then uh, we're going to go down to McDermott. Oregon, Nevada line runs right through yeah. McDermott. I heard it goes through a building. Or at least oh, it yeah. used to, yeah? It's closed now. It's Is it? called the White Horse. White Horse Hotel. But it's still there, the building. Or at least I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go take a look and, and see what's going on. So. It was certainly nice to have this river nearby, our rustic little campsite, to cool down in the fucking desert and swim and bathe in. But it didn't feel very rivery, more like a large irrigation ditch filled with cow shit and other fecal runoff. Yes, there were fish jumping and ospreys dining upon the riparian delights, giving it an authentic riverine feel. But when you washed up in the drink and emerged from the Oahe, you just felt like there were still chunks of unidentified brown schmutz clinging to your body. But 
with that refreshing Dr. Bronner's undercarriage tingle, it's just hard to not feel clean, even hours later. Oregon ends a few yards from the post office, putting McDermott in Nevada. The state line cuts through some buildings, the White Horse Inn for one. Slot machines forbidden in Oregon are on the Nevada side, so you gamble in Nevada and you sleep in Oregon, under the same roof. The dusty hamlet is lively and hot in the summer, quiet and freezing in winter. Colorful general store is shopping and social center of vast sagebrush basin, modest tourist facilities. McDermott proved to be quite a stop on our Southeast Oregon road trip. The furthest Southeast town in Oregon, it was our goal on our odyssey. And the stop did not disappoint. The town had quite a reputation in the early part of the last century. Travelers on the road in were sometimes cautioned by passing Basques to beware of the gamboliers, which could be found in that vicinity. It was a rough and rugged place, and that heritage seems to have emerged from day one. Settlers in the vicinity of Camp McDermott are deserting their ranches and have gone to the post for protection. The place is garrisoned by a few infantrymen, and in the case of an attack, it is doubtful whether they could resist the Redskins. In the papers in the 19-teens, 1920s, there was something of a comings and goings section where visits from out-of-town people could be printed. Kind of like those braggy people in your Facebook feed, but with a lot less pics of food. A 1917 edition of Vale, Oregon's Malheur Enterprise broadcast that disparity that McDermott residents lived under. The paper wrote that, A.D. Callahan of McDermott was a business visitor to Vale Wednesday. Mr. Callahan is something of an optimist and states that conditions in his section of the county are not at all bad, considering. He also says the people down his way like to come to Vale oftener as provisions and other merchandise can be bought much cheaper here than in Nevada trade centers. But poor roads in the southern part of the county make their visits few and far between. Just like conditions today, being so isolated also created a horrible disparity in this community when compared to the rest of the state. On education, two pupils in the McDermott School will write in the January examinations. These are the first children in this district to write in the state examinations. We hope that in another year, all of the rural schools will be sending out 8th grade graduates instead of reporting children who are leaving school when in the 5th, 6th, or 7th grade. There is no reason why these children in our interior districts should not receive as good training as the boys and girls who live in or near towns. On basic infrastructure. At dinner that night, we heard murmurs of discontent against the treatment Southern Malheur County has received from the rest of Oregon. McDermott people charged that Portland was building splendid highways for her own selfish use, 
but not a penny of state money was going into roads for that thinly populated southeastern Oregon. But that isolation helped mold McDermott into a great place to get your sin on. Especially if you didn't mind environs a little rough around the edges. Oh, and dusty. And, um, fucking hot. At the height of the failed social experiment, it was written that McDermott has a lack of reverence for the prohibition law with five saloons running open with bars, brass footrails, and a stock that includes everything from bad whiskey to good wine. There are two small schools, three dance halls, and about three little scrubby trees, and no churches. McDermott knew how to party and how to give the people in the middle of the godforsaken desert exactly what they want. A good fucking time. A four-day festival was traditionally held in July in the outpost with throngs of merrymakers pouring into town and filling up all the available rooms. 1917 saw horse races with significant purses dominating the activities, which included a ladies' saddle race on the 4th of July. Dancing each of the four evenings was also immensely popular, with dances going all night long. Boxing matches were quite well attended. A good scrap was witnessed on the night of the 4th, with a popular prizefighter named Bilboa knocking out Kid Barbarian in the second round. Lassa Domingo and Joe Worth battled the next night for five rounds, concluding suddenly after a wicked jab to Lassa's stomach. The referee of the fights was 134-pounder Joe Gruel, a.k.a. Champion Lightweight of the North. 1917 found all the buzz revolving around Gruel's possible bout with Sing Hosan, a Chinese prizefighter from Boise. McDermott was a good fucking time. Any discussion of the McDermott area would be slipshod without mentioning the region's own Bigfoot. A correspondent of an Idaho newspaper gives a romantic account of the Indian Bigfoot, who is supposed to be the person who is doing the principal part of the scalping now going on in eastern Oregon. The Oregonian, 1867. McDermott's Bigfoot was a dude. A big dude. At a reported 6 feet 9 inches and 300 pounds, one could start to entertain a Sasquatchian comparison. Add to that his 59-inch chest and the metaphor seems appropriate. But what really grounded this nickname was the fellow's feet. Bigfoot had big feet. 
big fucking feet. With a footprint reported at 17 and a half inches, Bigfoot was also quite agile on these monstrous appendages. He was said to have been able to run down the desert's ubiquitous jackrabbits and bludgeon them with a club. His name was Howluck, or Aulux, as some have said, but of course, with a nom de guerre of Bigfoot, well, that's a hard one to shake. Howluck was a noted leader, a great warrior, and a phenomenal wartime strategist among the Native Americans of the Great Basin. The Snake Indians he rode with had a massive range in the region, from the Boise area to Klamath Lake and then back to the Warm Springs Reservation. Riding through this zone, Bigfoot would insert his warriors into gun battles with federal troops, steal a shit ton of horses and often kill settlers. His band would harass wagon trains as well. Howluck had attempted to confederate the Klamath Lake, Modoc, and Goose Lake Indians, as well as some other tribes, to wage an all-out war against the Caucasian invaders. Scattered deep in the desert, Bigfoot and his band of snakes were nearly impossible to root out, and they raided and battled at will for four years, roughly from 1864 to 1868. They struck fear into the white communities and folks traveling through the region, and oftentimes their raids were ferocious and violent. No mercy was shown to many of these settlers that fell into Howluck's warpath. His legend grew as large as his big fucking feet. After General Cook's battle on Terrace Plain in January, some of the captured squaws said that Aulux was killed in the fight. Such could not have been true, as Mr. George Hill and party, who followed the Indians that ran off the stock in Jordan Valley some two weeks ago in the neighborhood of the Owyhee Ferry, discovered the unmistakable mammoth foot tracks which bore evidence of having been impressed by something more substantial than Bigfoot's ghost. In June of 1868, Bigfoot and 61 of his warriors were captured in eastern Oregon by a military detachment. The great warrior had tired of the combat and was convinced by the feds to help bring in some of his associated bands that were still plundering and killing. One of these groups, located on the upper Weiser River, had begun a psychological campaign against the settlers there. They had begun to wear massive moccasins on their feet, leaving footprints found after their pitched battles that suggested the appearance of Bigfoot. After working with the feds to settle things down in the region, Bigfoot did end up settling in Oregon, adopting reservation life in November of 1869. He was still able to run down those goddamn jackrabbits, though. Only now he carried a cane for his customary bludgeoning. There is a butte in Harney County named for the warrior. Howluck's name lives on in his area of operation, the land he commanded to this day. McDermott has always been different from the rest of the state. A 1929 article noted that of McDermott's 300 residents, about 90% of them were Spanish Basques, enriching the community with a decidedly foreign aspect. The reporter also penned,
It might be of interest to Mr. Ripley, author of Believe It or Not, to know that there is one Western community at least which has not yet hoisted a neon sign. Quite different is McDermott's dark main street from Portland's brilliantly lighted Broadway. Likewise, McDermott boasts few modern conveniences such as pavement, street lights, curfews, traffic cops, or air landing fields. But McDermott did have the White Horse Inn and Saloon. Frustratingly, Friedman furnishes one forlorn finding on the White Horse, but we found for much for more. Fortunately, who we found was Joe White Buffalo, neighbor, owner, and physical and spiritual caretaker of the now derelict White Horse Inn. We found him in his backyard, and he gave us a tour of the White Horse. Hi, my name's Doug. Doug? Yeah. Hi, Doug. Glad to meet you. Hi, buddy Andy. Hey, Andy. We're from Portland. We do a radio show up there, and we decided to drive down to McDermott. Yeah. And just see what's going on along the way. On so, the edge, man. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. We're in Oregon now. My front of the house is in Nevada. And awesome. My shop and everything is in the in the backyard, so yeah. I call it living on the edge. So when we went up to the front then, we were in Nevada. Well, my car's yeah. parked in Nevada, but right now you and I are talking in Oregon. Yeah, That's awesome. exactly. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll show you some. Yeah. Like, like, like. Now, somebody told yeah, us. See the peak of that little roof way over there. Yeah. That's, that's the line. That's the line. And then it goes that way. That's awesome. And then right through the white horse. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's mine too. Now, we're reading but, the guidebook by Ralph Friedman. It's called Oregon for the Curious. It was pretty popular in like the late 60s, early 70s. And he mentions that white horse. He says you can go oh, in it. He said that you could play slots. Yeah. You back? Is that how it used to be? Yeah, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you guys a tour if you oh, want. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah let's check okay, it out. Okay, well, hold on. Okay. Let me grab my cup of coffee. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drink, no right? worries. And uh, that way I can walk around with my cup of coffee. Sure. Should we meet you out front then? All right, come on in. This place gets used for a dumping ground for animals, too. Oh, right there cool. in that parking lot. Yeah. Wouldn't believe how many cats and dogs those people have. Dogs. Here we are. Wow. Okay, we got visitors, everybody. Ooh. This, see, that's called the Chinaman's door. Okay. Back in the old days, there was a lot of Chinamen here uh, working the, the mine. And uh, anyway, so they had a lot of them working here. This wasn't the restaurant part, but the Chinese people could only use their, their door. That was for the white people there. <laughs> Cowboys here, you know. And then you come to here, and there's the state line right there in the ceiling. Oh, look at that. That is so cool. Yeah, you're all standing in Oregon, and I'm in Nevada. 
So you know what year the White Horse opened up or what year they built it? Well, we've got different uh, re returns from it. Uh, some people say it started in like the 1890s and then there was a death in the family. The, the son died, the little boy died, Frankie. We think he's one of the kids that are living here now. And uh, anyway, uh, so a sister-in-law took over and got it built and got done by sometime by 1911, 1912, you know. Uh, and it was one of the most high time places around, of course, you know. They had stuffed mattresses, they used to, you know, old pictures you can see, stuffed mattresses, heat, you know, <laughs> from this wall all the way around was all slot machines. Right. And then out here were 21 tables and poker tables and, you know, they had a lot of table games still back then. But it's, uh, this is the local area, kind of what it looked like, see, you know, it was sheep before there were cows. Yeah. Did the Basques get down this far? This is the Basque. This yeah. is Basque. This is okay. Basque territory, yeah. And see, I mean, it's amazing. Like when you look at this guy going up the stairs and then you climb the stairs, you can kind of feel, you know, oh, I'm going up. All right, use the handrail, though. All right. Let me see. Well, I've got jump on the steps. See, my skylight blew out. That's oh. the biggest bummer, man. That was the diamond in the rough. It was, it was a great big pyramid-shaped uh, skylight. And I think that had a lot of energy to do with the ghost activity here. Like now, this one here, I'm gonna show you the layout. This would have been the madam's room here, all right? We just, we found all these doors and stuff when we started tearing it out and cleaning it up. But that door there goes to a room that was considered the viewing room. So the girls would come out of their room. See, they could be very discreet. They could just not use the hallway and then they go in for viewing. The men pay him. The girls come out here, pay the madam, and then off to their designated areas. So it was really cool. A lot of history here. 27 ghosts. Really? Yeah, we had the... Uh, apparition and paranormal investigators come here and do a uh, they spent the night in fact and uh, yeah they got all sorts of ghost activity yeah it was just on tv about three weeks ago or so wow. and right there you see those bullet holes yeah now one of the ghosts that we hear here is we believe is that woman that was in that room she was a prostitute and uh, some cowboy thought, you know, that that was his only woman. And uh, 
he came back off the range early and she was in there with another dude. So he ended up kicking that door down. The guy was escaping out of the window and shot those bullets through the window there. And then she got stuck inside. He tore the whole sink off the wall, kicked the panels out of the door. But anyway, I'm sure it's who, I gotta find out what her name was. because. The guy ended up doing like nine or ten years in in prison here in Winnemucca. And uh, but anyway, you hear this voice of this woman going, "What's the matter? Don't you love me anymore?" I mean, like pleading for her life type thing, you know. Please forgive me. I'm sorry, you know. And uh, so I'm assuming it was the guy pointing the gun at her, you know, because she was going to kill her too and stuff like that. So. It's uh, it's pretty spooky here. I love it though, you know, that's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll go down this hallway. So you have had some conversations? A lot. Yeah. 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 I have seen orbs coming through here. Uh, the first night I seen it, I was sitting at my table and I heard this music, like this New Orleans music. And uh, I'd seen an orange orb from my room. I could see it coming down the hallway there. So, and it was coming this way. So I ran out this door that was around the corner. I seen it going into another room the thing is, you, you can follow it to the to where the noise comes from, but it keeps moving. You can't catch up with it. So, anyway, the next night, the exact same thing happened, but I ran out of this door. I thought, I'll, you know, I'll meet up with it. And I'm standing out right, mm -hmm. right about here, and all of a sudden, this orb comes around the corner there. Now it's about, it was the size of a basketball. Now it's like two feet around. And as it's coming towards me, it's just getting bigger. It completely engulfed me right here. I mean, even being a shaman, I was scared to death. I froze, you know, and I'm just looking inside this orb and I see this guy, this New Orleans guy, and like, like they're doing a funeral and he's playing this trumpet, you know, and you got the other guy that's usually doing something else and I seen this little guy in there had this French horn he spotted me and he was kind of looking at me he had this weird I mean when you see these people they're dressed very strangely compared to us and anyway I just stood here I didn't say a thing I looked and I let it pass me by and by the time it got to the bathroom I'm just standing here, still frightened. I mean, it frightened me. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm telling you the truth, man. It was scary. And I'm standing here going, my brain is saying, come on, Joe, snap out of it, snap out of it. You know, this is something fantastic, you know, and I'm like trying to say, I'm trying to talk to them. Wait, come back, come here. 
but I couldn't say nothing. My voice, it, it's, you know, something happened, you get shocked, I guess. And, and I finally was going, wait, 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 you guys, wait. And then they went into the room and, and I cautiously went there because I was still scared. And I was afraid I was going to get engulfed in this orb and disappear, you know. I didn't know what to think. But anyway, it disappeared. Again, in the other rooms. And then, like, when you get to this room back here, you know, I mean, they can go through walls. And... Well, thank you so much for showing it. We yeah. really, really appreciate it. I'm glad you guys like it, man. I, I hope you can get some interest for me. It sure would be cool, you know. And there again, I've had different thoughts. What could I do? When you own a building like this, you have amazing how many things go through your mind. What should I do with this, you know? And I've decided I wanted to pretty much restore it to its original, as close as we can, you know? And, uh, kind of make a museum, a little museum out of it, you know. I, if somebody wants to rent a bar, I don't have the time to like rent a bar and run, run something like that, but you know, if somebody wants to say, hey, I'll take the place, I'll run it, you know, and you know, all, all they gotta do is bring in, uh, turn on the electricity and water's already here, sewer's already here, you know. Well, thanks so much, Joe. It's just wow. just yeah. such a treat. Isn't this fun? Just feel feel so lucky that we ran into you. Yeah, I'm so happy. Yeah. There again, I think the spirit brought you guys, man. Right on. It's all spirit, man. I, I believe that very much. Right on. That's great. Now, now you said you did something. If you ever find yourself wanting to run an historic and haunted roadhouse on the Oregon-Nevada border, let us know. We'll put you in touch with the owner. McDermott is inaccessible. Both by road, well, I'm mean, technically it is accessible, but it's as far as you can get from Multnomah County on some paved road, but it's also inaccessible in the mind. It's insane to think that it's part of the Beaver State, but it is. It's just as much of our collective id as is Astoria or Sun River or Canada. McDermott is Oregon, or at least a little fraction of it is Oregon. But as a historian, McDermott feels inaccessible too. We certainly can't give it the credit it is due in this brief survey, but still, the history is aged, but spotty. There are gaps in the timeline. Not everything is being told, and period filters were applied and the tales were whitewashed. So much was left unsaid, but you know the past was legendary and illustrious. McDermott deserves a thorough study. The diaries need to be discovered and the old folks need to lay it out. But in another way, much like Joe White Buffalo's tour of the White Horse Inn, maybe the cloudy, ghostly narrative is better. With so much unsaid, there is so much room for the imagination. And maybe it should stay that way. New Orleans funerary bands marching through its crumbling halls as we sit in the dark contemplating all that was and all that could have been.
Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Kick-Ass Oregon History. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kink Crispin, or he'll put on his giant moccasins and convince you you're being haunted by the ghost of a 150-year-old Indian warrior chief. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Roasters, Tori Zanzalari, Bill Lanchester, Tony Tanzler, Austin Marilyn Lindbergh, Alex Ward, Eric White, Doug Halpin, Halloway, Joshua Fisher, Jim Cornell, Roman Marks, Emily Ross John Ross Johnson, Dan Zalka. Dawn Chisholm, <laughs> Lizzie Katzen, Beverly Schoonover, Jim Keyes, Brock Didis, Allison Carter, Tristan Lemons, Dallying Daly, Robert Crispin, Carol Foster, John Dyler, Louis Salloway, Rebecca Woodsmith, Heather Gogan, John Quill Lee Masters, Peter Lindbergh, Mike Vogel, Dave Lindbergh, Gary Lindbergh, William Reagan, Tammy Paul, Todd Dixon, Heather Arnett Anderson, Peter Archer, Saul Scott. Is that really it? Where's Mike motherfucking Wyatt? And Mike motherfucking Wyatt. ORHistory.com